So guys, there are some words we all just hate, or at least most of us strongly dislike. Moist. <laughs> Gurgle. Phlegm. Maggots. Reiterate. I won't read them all. You can see them up on the screen. <laughs> I asked, I went around San Diego today and asked everybody from waiters and bartenders, I was asking everybody, what, what are some words you just hate? And so that comes from our culture, right? Irregardless. I, yeah, which isn't a word, technically. Right? And the Bible has its own words. I think that most of us, at least in our flesh on our worst days, tend to have some negative feelings about. Um, how about these? Commit. Submit. Obligate. Obey. Sacrifice. Give. Do. How do those hit your heart? But here's the thing. Irregardless of how we feel about them, the Bible doesn't tend to use these words in a negative way. The writers of Scripture seem to use these words in a way that connects with God's grace, with good news. And that they're evidence of, of God's grace and love for us. And my hope for us today is that we would have a mind shift and let the Word of God recapture our hearts. That we would somehow transport back to the, the roots of our faith, so to speak. And that we'd recover and reclaim the, the beauty and the mystery and the joy that our predecessors felt as they looked at these words, the same way we might look at a beautiful winter sunset in San Diego or a medium-rare, dry-aged, prime steak covered in compound butter. Like, I just lost half of you guys right there. You're already at dinner. My hope is that we'll recover the good news in this passage, that all of life is soaked in the grace of God. And that's the context of this story, grace. As we, as we look back at what God has been doing in Israel through this book of Nehemiah, and even last week as they stand and they recount the story of their forefathers that led up to the exile, and they open the word of God for the first time in 70 years, and they say, wow, we have failed time and time again, yet time and time again God has been gracious and merciful and it describes him over and over as slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in mercy. And it led Israel to this, this heart level of repentance. Right? We saw that last week. Repentance actually being good news. And now it's time to recommit. This is continuing from last week. And it brings up the point that, guys, repentance isn't just words and tears but it's actually actions. It's a changed life. It's a new way of living and thinking and talking. And it's three words I hate, but I hope to redeem today. I hope that all of us will walk away with joy when we hear these words. Commitment, obedience, and giving. After today, I hope that when you hear those words, you'll sense joy rising up in your soul. John said it this way this week. He said, repentance is stuff I got to do, but I do it out of grace. And confession, I need this today. I fail all the time. I don't know about you guys, but I have these broken cycles in my life where I like sin, 
and then I repent, and then I never sin again. Right? No, I, it's like wash, rinse, repeat, and you just get dirty all the time. I'm always sinning. I'm always failing. And I don't just need emotional words. I don't just need a moment of passionate tears and words of repentance, but I need it to show up in my life. I need a changed life, a new heart. And it's only possible as God graciously renews our heart. Amen? So the first of these words today, commit. Say this with me. Covenant is freedom. We don't like commitment unless it's worth the payoff, right? Unless it's worth the payoff. Uh, you get Facebook event invitations. You know what my favorite button is? Maybe, exactly. <laughs> wow. I'm not the only one. Right? We love getting commitments, but we hate giving commitments away. Hey, I need help next week. I'm moving. Right? And I need to borrow your fill-in-the-blank, your truck, your boxes, your children for slave labor. Like, I need help from you. And, and how you feel about that depends on which side of the conversation you're on, right? If you're asking, you're hoping for commitment, and you're feeling anxious, and you feel bad even asking, right? Because you know that when you're asked, when you're on the other side of it, you feel anxious because you don't want to commit. I think if we're, we're honest, and the question is why? Why do we love others to commit to us, but we hate committing to others? I think it's because commitment is scary. And the two reasons I thought of this week that commitment is scary, at least for me, is one, because firstly, commitment is limiting. By choosing this one option, I just limited myself to all the other options, right? Commitment is, is limiting, like, for instance, in marriage. That's one of the things you talk about a lot as a pastor. And people are like, yeah, I'm so excited that I get to kiss her, but she is the last person I'll ever kiss. Commitment is scary, right? Commitment causes anxiety. And, and or, or maybe if you're entering into a car lease, you're like, I have to commit this amount of funds for this amount of time over here. It's limiting my options with my finances. Kenny, I remember when you moved from Arkansas to San Diego, one of the first conversations we had is like, dude, there are so many options like, in Arkansas, it was like, what are we going to do tonight? <laughs> and here, it's like, what are we not going to do tonight? So many options in San Diego. My father's a pastor, and I remember he told me when he moved here, um, the culture shock, because in Indiana, where he was before, if he'd get up and say, hey, guys, we're going to have a church work night. We need everybody to show up. Who can show up? Everybody stand. You'd have 60% of the people stand up. And then come the work night, you'd have like 80% of them there. And then he came here and he was like, San Diego, how many of you guys can show up for a church work night? And like 90% stood up and like 20% showed up. <laughs> Commitments are scary because they're limiting. But also, I think they're scary because we know our track records. We've looked back over our past and we know our, our tendency to fail to fall short. We make commitments, and then we don't keep our word. I promised I would never do that again. Here I am again. I've tried over and over, but I keep falling back. 
how do I always end up in a relationship like this? In these broken patterns, we don't like making commitments because they limit our options and we feel like we're going to fail anyway. And let's take it a step farther. How about that word covenant? That biblical word that God is a covenant God. Did you know even in the ancient world, covenants were not just made like written and signed like a contract, but that they were actually cut? Because normally a, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice or something was put into it and sacrificed as part of the covenant. And, and a covenant costs something. And just like we're afraid of committing to one another, I think we're even more often afraid of committing to God. Because he's kind of a big deal. Right? But just, just remember this. He's committed to us. And we know this because every covenant has two sides. You see God entering into covenants with so many people through Scripture. And I don't have time to go into each one. But look them up. Adam. Noah. Abram, Moses, right? God enters into a relationship with somebody and says, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live, and this is how I'm going to live toward you. In fact, in Deuteronomy, like, it, it, God gives the law. It's couched in grace, right? God gives the law to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is how God describes the covenant relationship. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord is your God. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Covenants are two-sided. And here we see Israel Jumping back into this old covenant of Moses and boldly committing to God that they will do their part. Our side, we're going to take care of. We promise. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, I'm like, well, that, that's pretty scary. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Like, you're really limiting yourself. You're making some serious promises that you probably won't be able to keep. And when I see things from that perspective, I'm missing out on something. One of our most crippling problems in life is our limited perspective, guys. Because the other side of the covenant is who? Who's on the other side of the covenant from us? God. And what's his character like? Is he just waiting for a chance to pounce like a tiger in the tall grass of the Serengeti looking for that gazelle? I'm just going to stop doing accents from the pulpit. That was bad. That was like Orphan Oliver meets like some Australian guy. 
God is merciful. He's loving. He's gracious. They've said it over and over. In fact, at least 10 times in chapter 9, they referred to God as merciful and gracious. This whole chapter is soaked in God's grace. And because of God's grace, they're willing to step forward and make a covenant because he finds pleasure in making promises to you. God loves limiting himself, as it were, to you, committing to you, giving you his best. He's not afraid of commitment. He's chosen you, and he's 100% invested in you. Do you believe that? And he doesn't reciprocate either. That's the awesome thing, because, like, he's faithful even when I'm not faithful. He gives us his best even when I'm like, ah, I've got leftovers. That's all I've got to give you, God. So why are the Israelites so willing to jump back into a limiting commitment they will probably fail at? I'll tell you, it's because they are seeing both sides. They are overwhelmed in this moment with the grace of God. And they're willing to commit. Because they've seen as much as they failed in this story, every time they failed, his grace and mercy was there to pick them back up. And they know that even though odds are against them, God is for them. And in this moment, they're seeing something we often forget, that we are objects of God's grace, that the covenant is based on his faithfulness, not ours, that there is hope in him. And when we open our eyes to see him and his grace, all of a sudden we're reminded that committing is actually good news. Committing to God is actually good news. And what do they commit to do? They commit to obey. Verse 29. That's the second thing. And the, and, and the transition here is this, guys. Law is grace. We often look at the law as a scary, big, bad thing. But the law of God is actually the grace of God. We'll get into that. Verse 29. We commit to join their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse which, don't let that throw you, what they're saying basically there is if we fail, we know God will correct us like he did the last 70 years of exile, right? We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. Obey. It is more than a cool, ironic clothing line. We don't like to obey, though, normally, unless we gain something by it on our own. I think if we're honest, we can assume that. Uh, the other day, I walk out, and Gavin has masterfully covered the living room floor with every toy imaginable. And he comes up to me and has the audacity to ask me for ice cream. Ice cream? I said, Gavin, you need to clean up your mess. And this is what, he looked at me, and he's like, uh, no. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, right? So I said, after you clean up your mess, you can have ice cream. And he said, oh, okay, Daddy. You should it was like Mary Poppins walked into the room, and a spoonful of sugar, and everything just magically started coming together. He was like the Tasmanian devil of cleanup. It was, it was crazy. So whirling around the living room cleaning things up. Let me ask you a question. Did Gavin's heart change? No. It was the same heart. Whether he was disobeying or obeying, right, his, his actions may have changed, but his heart didn't. Same heart, different actions. 
Reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, right? Jesus tells the story of that. The son says, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now. And he goes out and he spends it all, disobeys, dishonors his dad, does his own thing, lives his own way. But when he comes back, you guys are familiar with the story. Um, and if you're not, talk to me after. It's awesome. Um, he comes back and the older brother has an attitude. Remember that? The older brother's like, no, 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 no. This son of yours, he messed up. You're giving him the fatted calf. That's out of my inheritance. Wait a second. I've been working my butt off for you, proving myself to you. He's got just as bad of an attitude as the younger brother. The older brother and the younger brother are two parts of the same, two sides of the same coin, right? They're, they both don't want the father. They want the stuff of the father. And they're going to get it in their own way. One by disobeying and one by obeying. And that's what the church is full of oftentimes, right? It's full of those of us who are like, yes, I found my way to have a good life and obey God and please him. But we do the good, right thing so often for the wrong reasons, out of a broken heart. The law, the law, the, our hearts are what the law exposes. And the law, the law gets a bad rap for this. To be honest, I think oftentimes when we hear the word law, we think bad news. The law is bad news, the gospel is good news. But that's not true. The law is the grace of God. He gave Israel to govern them, to love them. And I wish I had time to get into the three uses of the law that Calvin talks about. I would love to talk to you afterward about it because I studied it and I'm excited about it. But I don't have time in the sermon, right? But the law is actually good news. The bad news is that we are unable to keep the law. That's the thing. So we get, I think some of us get mad at the law for that. It's not the law's fault. Just like in the same way money is not bad, the love of money really shows what's in our heart. The love of money is the root of evil, not money itself. But the law is actually good news. Read Psalm 119. It's, all, it's a really long psalm, but it's all about how the law is good news for life. The law is God's grace on display the other night, we, we had a um, gospel community, two gospel communities got together. And guys, if you haven't done that, I want to challenge you to do it because it's a lot of fun. You get to know some of the other people in our family. And so it was East Village and uh, Claremont. We got together um, down at Tyson and Winnie's house, awesome hosts. If you ever need a place to go throw a party, talk to Winnie. She's amazing. And we had a blast, and there were so many good conversations and comments that night as we prayed through Nehemiah 9 together. But one of the things that Natasha said really stood out to me, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but she said, the thing I love about this is that God, as a good father, gives us his law and his commandments because he loves us, and he wants to show us how to please him. And I grew up in a home where my dad didn't necessarily do that. We never knew how to please him. Just got randomly in trouble for stuff. And maybe she wasn't talking about herself, but she definitely said that that's one of the, How many of you guys have experienced a relationship like that in your life where you don't know how to please somebody? Husbands, be careful. Right? <laughs> I mean, imagine saying to your wife, I won't give you a kiss in the morning. It's legalism. I'm not going to do it because you told me to do it. How would that go over? Here's the deal, guys. 
We don't do away with the imperatives of the law. When, when God says, do this, we do it. The problem is, oftentimes, we try to do things out of the wrong heart, and we have to do things out of a right heart, a new heart that God has given us. In other words, we seek to obey God because of who he is and what he's done and who he has created us to be out of new hearts exposed to grace. The Israelites want to honor God in this chapter by obeying his law in response to his grace. They say this over and over, we will. That word will, that word will is a, is a word of volition. It's desire. I want to, right? We will obey scripture, verse 29. Verse 30, we will lead our families well. Verse 31, we will worship our God. And in the rest of the chapter, we will give generously. Again, our issue is seeing things from our side. Why don't we obey? Because we want certain things. And we believe that if we obey God, then we won't get to have those things. Or we obey in order to get things we want through obedience. And all the while, we're missing out on life, and we're seeing things apart from God's grace. But when we see things from God's perspective, we begin to see his commands as gracious invitations to life. Come on, cool. We begin to believe that his way is actually better than ours. Uh, I remember when Ivan was younger, his favorite sentence, I heard it at least five times a day, was, Daddy, can I have candy? <laughs> we are just like that with our desires, aren't we? Imagine if I let him have candy every time he wanted to. Right? He would have no teeth. He would be a diabetic. He may be dead. I don't know. There was so much candy in the house, actually, from Halloween. Halloween is from the devil. full of candy, and he always wanted it. And we're just like that with our desires. We always think we know what's best. We want what's best. And the candy we want may be okay, but here's the deal, guys. It can't be the staple of our diet. Dad knows best. And he actually wants what's best for us, and he's shown us that in his law, in his commandments. He loves us. He gives us chances time after time. And when we look at this passage, we're like, why are they committing to obey all the commandments? Yeah, right. They're never, ever going to do that. But that's not God's attitude toward them. God doesn't look at it like that. He doesn't have that kind of attitude with us. He loves our effort. Thank God we're not measured by our effort or judged by our effort. It's not our effort that saves us, but he loves our effort. And he saved us. He did it for us in the gospel. So because of the gospel, guys, we're free to try and fail because we are loved and accepted by his grace. When we open our eyes to see God's grace, obedience becomes good news. Because his way is the best way. And because the gospel means that our failure just means more of his mercy more of his love. We don't have to be afraid from committing to obey God. And lastly, we don't have to be afraid of committing to obey God by giving, because actually giving is receiving. And I know, I know we don't like to give, and trust me, as a preacher, like the one thing you want to avoid talking about is giving. It's like the, you could talk about grace, you could talk about some of the hardcore like sins and stuff, and people are like, that's right, 
I'm with you. And it's like, now we're going to talk about giving. It's like, whoom. All right. Everybody's pupils dilate immediately. We don't like to give. But one thing we see here in the text is that is their priorities. They actually start to bring the first of everything. I think Dan pointed out in our Bible study this week, it's because they're putting God first. They're putting God first. They bring the first fruits of everything. You saw it in the chapter over and over. But not just the first fruits. How much did they give? You know, if you add up giving in the law, I know a lot of times when we talk about giving in the law, we talk about tithing, 10%. But if you really add up giving in the law, it wasn't just the tithe. There was also the tithe, you know, for, for the Levites. There was, there was the giving for the poor. There was the giving for the festivals. If you add up all the giving under the Mosaic law, it came up to like almost 30%. You want to talk about faith and trusting God. 30% of your income. And not just money. Let's talk about our time. Let's talk about some of our other resources that we have. How much of that are we willing to give to God? What percent is enough to give to him? In fact, during this time, the last Old Testament book was written. Malachi. This was written right around the time of Nehemiah. And in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Malachi says this, and I wish I had Samuel L. Jackson here to read this passage for me, but I'm not going to attempt to do it in a Samuel L. Jackson voice. Just going to read it. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But here's the good news. Bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to a test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. If we aren't careful, we'll get distracted and missed out on the main point here, guys, that giving is good news. Do this for me. Turn to somebody near you and say, God's shovel is bigger than yours. You can't outgive God. You can't. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not getting into prosperity doctrine. I'm not saying if you give God a hundred, he'll give you a thousand. Let's put the offering plate right up here. Come on, guys. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. But the Bible is clear that your giving represents your faith. That nothing shows a heart of faith and trust like giving to God. That's why Jesus talked about giving more than heaven, hell, angels, and demons combined. Because it's a tangible representation of where your heart is right? Where your money is, there will your heart be also. And if you give from a heart of love and gratitude and trust, and I'm not talking about giving to get, I'm not talking about giving because you have to, the legalistic, lawful approach. I'm talking about giving from a heart that's been invaded by grace, where you see that everything you have is a gift from God. If you give from that heart, God promises to bless you abundantly. And that comes through all kinds of forms. Let me ask you guys, what are some ways God blesses us? Turn the microphone over here. 
What was that? I'm so sorry. Health, yeah. Health. God blesses us with good health. What else? Family, relationships. People in our lives that love you that are a constant demonstration of the love of God. Yeah, what else? There's a joy when you give. God loves a cheerful giver, Scripture says. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness for our sins. What else? It's really hard to hear up here, sorry. Protection. Yeah. Protection, provision. God blesses us so many ways. The more you realize you're blessed, I promise you, the more you're going to give. Look at your giving in your life, and not just of your finances, your time, your energy, your effort. Look at the giving of your life. Look at where you spend your money on your bank statement, and look at your calendar on your iPhone, and where you spend your time. And you're going to see really quickly how much you believe you're blessed by God. The more you realize you're blessed, the more you'll give out of the overflow of your heart. And the problem with giving is the same as it is with committing and the same problem we have with obeying. It's a heart issue. We don't trust God. We don't see things His way from His perspective. We just see our side of the covenant. We forget to look at His. But when you see His love for us and His grace for us, our heart can't help but be melted. Then we start to look with eyes of faith just like the people in this passage. I, I love it. It's like this. It's like they're like, yeah, we see that God over and over through the story gives his first and his best for us. So that's what we're going to do. In fact, we're going to commit to it. We're going to commit to giving our first and our best for God. Harold, who was in the video, said it this way. I love it. He said, if we will trust God with our first fruits, he will take care of our landlord and our electric bill and our happiness. But we so often take those things into our own hands, right? We have to take care of them first, and then we end up giving to God out of what's left over, out of our spare change. But when we see his grace, that everything we have is a gift, we are freed from the tyranny of self-rule, and we get to live by faith. When we open our eyes to see God's grace, giving becomes good news, because he's provider, and he gives us more than enough. I don't know about you guys today, but I would love to give God more of my time, more of my money, more of my life. I want to give more fearlessly instead of holding back in fear, instead of believing I'm my own provider. I want to, I want to be more generous with God and people around me because he's given me so much. So in closing, in this chapter we see that God's people were making great personal sacrifices so that they could live in obedience to God and make him known to those around him who are not yet believers. And they're showing us a couple of things, guys. They're showing us that they had actually truly repented because they're willing to back it up with their lives, right? And they're showing us that they truly believed God would provide for them in every way. And at New City, at New City, every day we face the same temptations to run from commitment by living life how we feel in the moment. To rebel against obedience by disobeying or by obeying to get the things we want. Or we try to avoid giving generously by not giving or by just giving out of our leftovers and what's left. But this, this story today encourages us, their example, especially to what it points to. Because 
The last point I'll make today is this, guys. Historically, we know something. They didn't do it. They didn't live up to their end of the bargain. They didn't fulfill the covenant. They didn't, even though they committed, they failed. They committed to obey and they disobeyed. They committed to give and they didn't. Over and over. Even after this. But it points us to something because a few years down the road, we find out that everything that they fell short at and everything that every day we fall short in, God provided through Jesus. Jesus gave 100% of himself. Not 10, not 30, 100. Everything. Every law that was broken, he fulfilled. And he was fully committed us so that we can commit out of love to him, not fear, but out of love. God knew we could never live up to the old covenant. So you know what he did? He gave us a new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. In closing the scripture, Luke 22, the last meal Jesus has with his disciples. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was cut. He was torn. He was, he was the covenant sacrifice. God himself took on the payment for this covenant that we get to remember today as we come down and feast on his life through communion. We get to remember the great price it cost God to have you, to have us for himself. And now we have life. It's, it's a life where we can see the other side of the story. We can see things from God's perspective, not just our own. And as the Spirit empowers, we actually get to commit. We can obey, and we can give out of good news that we've been freely given everything, not out of the legalism or lawlessness that we tend to normally obey and give and commit out of. As we stand, just like you to close your eyes and stand with me. And I'd like for you to really consider recommitting today, but I'd like for you to consider doing it a little different than normal. Often we do this individually. We recommit. We repent and we believe. But I'd like for us today to recommit as a family. Just like that list of names that we skipped, right? We skipped it for time's sake. But here's the deal. Why is that list of names in there? It's important because they recorded who committed. They recorded that we as a family, we're all on board. We are doing this together. It's not based on our goodness or ability, but on his goodness and his power working in us. So close your eyes. I want to ask you today, as the good news of the gospel soaks into your heart, as the Holy Spirit kind of lifts the fog, so to speak, and helps you see clearly, out of trust in his grace that the God of the universe is committed to you, and merciful when we fail, and provides you everything you need, will you recommit to the Lord and his family today? Like the last verse of this chapter says, we will not neglect the house of our God. So when you think about this community, 
God's body, will you commit to admonishing and encouraging and walking with and being patient with, forgiving and sacrificially, generously giving? We, we commit to honor him by obeying his will for your life and giving of your time and energy and effort and finances to dad and his family. Will you? Will you come and confess your areas of disobedience or obedience for what you can get because you trust so much in his grace today? We do that. I just want to pray over you. Father, as we come down today, take some time to remember this new covenant that you graciously provided for us through your son. We remember that this bread represents his perfectly righteous life lived in our place. Not only was his blood poured out to offer us forgiveness and pardon for everything we've done wrong, but we don't just get a clean slate. We also get the very holy righteousness of God because of Christ. I pray that as we come down, we would confess our need to one another, that we gather in groups, Lord, and that Holy Spirit, you would take over, that you would do a work, that you would apply this truth to our hearts and bring life change so that we would start taking some of these negative words that on our own we tend to hate and that you'd redeem them and that we would start seeing the joy, the good news, the grace of our God. In light of your scripture, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.